Um, when you have, when your kids are really little and you're going on a trip, um, you have to pack a lot of stuff, you know? Those of young parents in the room or those of you that remember that, right? You got the car seat and the bottles and the food and the diapers and, and all of that stuff. And it's so many steps that before you even get into the car, you wonder, is this even worth it? Like, should we just stay home? And, and then many times that would happen, and we'd get down the road, and we're many miles down the road, and someone goes, oh, I forgot this. Very important object, whatever it could be, right? And you have to turn around and go back home, right? You have to go back in order to go forward. <laughs> it feels counterintuitive. It's almost like, too, like when you're, maybe you're driving, and, and your phone tells you to make this exit from some interstate, and uh, you miss it, Right? or you're not paying attention, and then you have to backtrack. I hate doing that. You hate doing that? you got to backtrack and waste time and get back to where you were in order to get where you want to go, you know? It reminds me of a story of a young family in the early 1960s that was uh, driving in the mountains of North Carolina, and this was in the early days, so the interstate system was still in development, and I-40 was still a young little baby. And this uh, young dad is saying, I... He's trying to save time because he's looking on a map, which we used to have to do. And uh, he decides, I'll cut through the mountains in order to get back to I-40 so it'll get us home faster. So he's cutting through these little hollers and highways. If you wanted to get anywhere back then, you had to take highways, right? Like 158 and 64 and 52 and all that stuff in order to get anywhere. So he's cutting through this little mountain area, and he realizes quickly that he's lost. So he sees a farmer on the side of the road and goes up to the farmer and says, excuse me, sir, can you tell me how to get to I-40 from here? I, all I see are mountains. And the man looks at the, the father and looks at his family and spits on the ground and says, son, you can't get there from here. <laughs> you can't get there from here. In order to get what you want, where you want to go, sometimes you have to go back to where you started. You know, there are those of us, there are those who have gone ahead, who have gone before us in this life of faith, who have trod this road of Christian living and life. They have established this tradition of the Christian church ahead of us, or they've already gone on, and they have such wisdom to give us. But sometimes, in order to get where you want to go, you have to go back to where you were to start the journey. Sometimes the old roads are the best roads. Sometimes the most ancient of paths give the best guidance. And before you decide to deviate off those ancient roads and jump the guardrails, we have to ask ourselves, why were those guardrails put up to begin with? G.K. Chesterton said, don't ever take a fence down until you know the reason it was put up. It's good stuff right there. Sometimes in our arrogance, we can think we know better than those who have gone ahead of us, right? Sort of a generational snobbery, post-enlightenment. So before you ask if you could, the traditions of our faith remind us, maybe you should stop and ask if you should. Don't deviate from the old roads until you first realize why they were so well trod upon to begin with. So we're in the second week of Back to the Basics, Discerning the Will of God, 
And today we're looking at the idea of tradition. Last week was scripture, this week's tradition, in terms of discerning the will of God for our lives. Uh, we, of course, start with scripture, the primacy of scripture, and then things like tradition, experience, and reason can then feed into this interpretation of scripture. Now, I don't know, this, is my, this probably won't be a shocker to you, but scripture rarely settles uh, debates in the church. Uh, points of doctrine or practice, uh, sometimes we have to turn to other things to help uh, inform our understanding, and tradition is one of those things. Things like tradition and, uh, and experience and reason, these things are partners in our interpretation of the Bible. They're not judges as how we interpret the Bible. They are ancillary sources, not usurpers of the primacy of Scripture. So these four words, Scripture, tradition, experience, and reason, these are, form what we call in the Wesleyan church, uh, the quadrilateral. Okay, I'm not taking you back to 10th grade trigonometry here. Um, it's, it's a quadrilateral. I'll show you a picture to explain what I mean. I like this, this image where you have scripture as a tabletop and the three legs are helping uphold the primacy of scripture, helping inform scripture. Um, this is a quadrilateral, not an equilateral. Scripture is not on the same playing field as these other three things but they, they uphold it and help us understand it better, lift it even more into the light. These uh, support our understanding of Scripture, you could say. So, um, as Methodist Christians, we don't read the Bible in isolation by ourselves. We read it within the context of the greater Christian church. We can learn from each other. Um, and the, the Bible is given by the church is meant to be interpreted in the church, and it, our traditions and our past can help illuminate how we understand it. Again, we have to look back sometimes in order to know how to go forward. Now, the prophet Jeremiah was someone who was at a crossroads. He and the people of Judah were in a very difficult time, a time of destruction, a time where the, the people of Babylon were going to overtake all of Judah and take them into slavery, which we know now happened. And Jeremiah, known as the weeping prophet, he's weeping because his people have forgotten the ways of God. They've forgotten the, the will of God, they weren't listening to his precepts and his guidance any longer. And Jeremiah is burdened. He's broken for his people. He's imploring them to return to the ancient paths, to go back to where you started, to know where in the world you're going to go in the first place, to not forget the wisdom of those who have gone ahead of us. So Jeremiah and Judah are at a crossroads. Have you ever felt like you were at a crossroads in your life sometimes? Maybe with a, a job change, a new relationship, new friends at school, and you had a decision to make, and you're at a crossroads. This is where Jeremiah and Judah are in Jeremiah chapter 6. One of the lowest times in their history, in Jeremiah's day, as you'll hear him say, the religious leaders of that time had failed them, and the nation of Judah was under judgment. And Babylon was going to come and fulfill that judgment. This is Jeremiah chapter 6, starting in verse 13. This is what Jeremiah is speaking. For from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. Now, who's he talking about? Well, from prophet to priest, all the religious leaders, all of everyone deals falsely. They were all going their own way, doing whatever they decided wanted to do. They have treated the wound of my people carelessly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. 
you know, he's, he's saying, hey, the, the people we trusted to help to kind of be the conscience of the people, to, to be the priests and the prophets of the people, they're, are my, my people are wounded, and you're not dealing with the situation as it is. You're telling them, everything's going to be fine, okay? These Babylonians, they're good guys, okay? They're not going to hurt us. Don't worry about Babylon. It's all going to be fine. We worked out it. We brokered a deal with the Babylonians. It's all going to be peaceful. Just wait and see, right? Trust us, Judah. It's all going to work out. You know, people that are in denial or denying the reality of a situation, sometimes they do a lot of harm. And instead of saying, speaking plainly, they instead just kick the can down the road. And Jeremiah is lamenting these things. He's saying they acted shamefully. They committed abomination. And yet they were not ashamed. You know, I think sometimes shame gets a bad rap. Sometimes shame is a great teacher. Now, we don't need to live in shame forever at all. But sometimes when we forget how to blush, that's a more dangerous place to be. When we forget to feel ashamed for anything, that's a spiritually dangerous place to be in your life. And this is where these people are, according to Jeremiah. They were not ashamed. They did not know how to blush. See, when we, when we feel shame and when we blush, that's be reminded that maybe we're learning something new. Maybe we're learning right from wrong. Maybe we need to listen to that. But they did not. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time that I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. Now you see a shift. Jeremiah is not talking anymore. The Lord starts to speak through Jeremiah, a prophet. Thus says the Lord, stand at the crossroads and look. Sometimes it can feel like standing still is wasted time, doesn't it? He, the Lord is saying to the people of Judah, just acknowledge the obvious. Stand still for a minute and look. Everything is not okay, Judah. Everything is not peaceful. There is a decision in front of you. The Hebrew word here for stand, ta'amod, means to be still, to be mindful. It's used frequently when talking about a servant standing next to their master, waiting obediently to receive orders, to meet the needs. Standing can give perspective, actually. Standing still can help you make a better decision. And it's not inaction. Sometimes standing still is better than just moving forward impulsively. And so he tells the people, stand and just look. Look at the two roads in front of you, Judah. You have a decision to make. And then he says this, and ask for the ancient paths. God tells them, ask me to show you back to where you started so you can know where you need to go. Ask for the old ways. And where do those old ways lead? Where the good way lies. And walk in it. The Lord speaking, saying, do this. Go that way. I want you to go that way. I want you to walk that way. So I've asked you to stand and look, and now I'm telling you, walk in it. Walk in it. Because I want you to live. Now you need to act. One of my favorite paraphrases of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, says that if you wait for perfect conditions, you'll never get anything done. And sometimes you have to... Get it together, stand and look, assess the situation, and then you have to act. And he says, where the good way lies, walk in it and find rest for your souls. This almost sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? 
If you do this, walk in it, and you will find rest. But they said, we will not walk in it. Now, this sounds like people, doesn't it? We won't do what you told us to do, God. No. God's advice is rejected. But then God persists in mercy. God's heart in the Old Testament is very full of mercy. It's also not correct. God, God's, God is God throughout the Bible. He doesn't change from Old Testament and New Testament. He, his heart is, is full of mercy for all generations. And he's saying to the people, okay, you won't walk in it. Well, also, I raised up sentinels for you. I raised up guardians for you. I raised up people to blow trumpets and remind you to return to the ancient paths. Give heed to the sound of the trumpet. Another chance to choose rightly. Mercy at work. I think about this sometimes. How do you know when you're deceived? Right? You don't. It's the nature of deception. When your heart gets hardened and you turn away and you forget to walk in the way that you were being led to go, the stubbornness of heart that people are exhibiting here, their closed eyes, closed ears, they're calling light darkness and darkness light. They're saying everything's fine. It's peaceful ways ahead. And it's lies. It's not. And the Lord himself is seeking to awaken them, but they won't listen. So, but they said, we will not give heed. Therefore, the Lord says, O nations, and know, O congregation, what will happen to them. Here, O earth, I'm going to bring disaster on this people. So God essentially says, I'm going to relinquish to you where you always wanted to go to begin with. I don't want to, but I will. I'm giving you over to the fruit of your decisions. And you, I will turn you over to that path you desire to go. Almost like Jesus taking away the lampstand in the book of Revelation from the seven churches that are listed there. He takes lampstands away from churches. He's the head of the whole thing. And he chooses to do that. Sometimes God says, if that's the way you want to go, I'll let you go. I don't want you to. But you have your free will. I'm going to bring disaster on this people, the fruit of their schemes, because they have not given heed to my words and as for my teaching, they have rejected it. You know, I, uh, I've always been fascinated by life cycles and organizations. It's kind of boring, I know. This is how my brain works. Um, like, I really like it when, like, McDonald's, like, rebrands itself, right? When they get a new logo, I'm like, oh, that makes me feel good, right? And that's what they want. They want me to feel good about that. Um, and so every organization has to rebrand itself in order to return back to its roots, kind of. Like, do you remember back in the 80s when uh, Coca-Cola came out with new Coke? Remember this? And there's this uproar. We are su- we are, this is a first world problem, by the way. Um, and, it, and it was such a fuss about it that they returned back to the original formula, which I hope it didn't have cocaine in it because the original formula had cocaine in it. Remember when Pepsi came out with clear Pepsi? Remember that? It tasted terrible. It tasted like flat Sprite to me. And people go, no, 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 go back to the thing, the original. Go back to the thing we know, to the, to the, to the thing that was at, there at the beginning. And so that's what, they, that's what businesses and groups have to do sometimes. They have to return back. They have to get back to the vision that they started out with because they've kind of lost their way. Did you know that in 1968, the United Methodist Church had over 11 million members and that today the membership of the United Methodist Church is less than 6 million? Now, granted, there's a lot of factors behind that. There's a lot of, 
A lot of, of course, a lot of people have passed away. More people attended church in 68 than they do now. Lots of reasons for that. But there is one thing I've come to learn about leadership, and that when you get stuck in life, whether it's your business or your life personally, or a church or an organization, when you're on a downward trajectory in life, the time to make the change is now. And when you're at the bottom of that hill, what you don't need to do is hit the gas and spin your wheels and get deeper in the mud, right? When things aren't working, you have to pivot and go back to what was going on pre-1968. What was working for them? And what aren't we doing now? But don't just continue to spin the tires and think that's going to fix it and throw punches in the dark and try and overcome it. You have to get back to where you were, the traditions that you upheld to begin with. See, every movement of God can become a monument. They turn into monuments eventually. They can. And in John Wesley's day, the movement of the Christian church in the 1700s had led on to that time. It became a monument. It became a monument to the past. And, and Wesley loved his Church of England, to which he was ordained. He never left his ordination from the Church of England. But he recognized that, that the church had kind of regressed into this sort of lethargic, bloated body that was really there for the educated and the wealthy. And it was dying. And so not being content with that state of affairs, Wesley began taking the gospel out into the coal mines in the fields, in the crossroads of the towns, and preaching multiple times a day. One time, even he even got kicked out of his father's home church. So then Wesley stood on the grave of his father and preached the gospel, taking it to the people. He received countless amounts of death threats, mobs which pulled him out of his house and try and kill him, and somehow he escaped. And after the decades went by, transformation began to happen. And when Wesley talked about discerning the will of God, of course he first went to scripture, and then he would talk about tradition. Now to him, tradition was something very specific. It wasn't just every theologian or church thinker in the past 2,000 years necessarily. He would say that the, the traditions that we look at to interpret scripture are what we call the church fathers. These people that lived during the first 300 years of the Christian church that were there before the Council of Nicaea, people that knew the Apostle John, people that hung out with the disciples. What did they say, right? Let's go back to the start. In order to know where we need to go, go back and read what they said. This is what um, John Wesley wrote this about reading the fathers. He said, can anyone who spends several years in those seats of learning be excused if they do not add to that learning the reading of the fathers? The fathers are the most authentic commentators on scripture, for they were nearest to the fountain and were eminently endued with that spirit by whom all scripture was given. It will be easily perceived. I speak chiefly of those who wrote before the council of Nicaea. I mean, it's true. If you just get back to the source material, the people that were closest on the action, it puts you closer to the real event. Like, for example, there's a guy named Polycarp, Okay. It's not like a fish you can catch at Lake Norman or something like that. This is polycarp, okay? This is the best, this is not a selfie. It didn't, couldn't do that back then. This is where we think polycarp looked like. But get this, 
Polycarp was, was, an, was a disciple of the Apostle John. So he knew John. John taught him how to follow Jesus. Polycarp was a contemporary of Ignatius. Polycarp was a teacher of other church fathers. And according to Irenaeus, Polycarp was instructed by the apostles. He knew them. He was brought into contact with many people who knew Jesus, who had literally touched him, okay? And so when you read these people, you're reading these traditions that feed into our understanding of Scripture. Their words aren't Scripture, but they are ancillary sources that give us better context. And now Polycarp wrote a lot, he said a lot, but I found this quote, and it was perfect for this message. Let us therefore forsake the vanity of the crowd and their false teachings and turn back to the word delivered to us from the beginning. See, the monument can become a movement again. Wouldn't it feel good to plant churches again and not just close them? Amen? Wouldn't it be exciting to be a part of that? I've never experienced that. I mean, think about the people that built this place. Think about the risk they took when they had a growing, flourishing church on Main Street. If they were so flourishing, they were landlocked. And they came out here to the country back then and spent a ton of money on this beautiful place, not knowing if it would be filled with people or not one day. But they took a risk. That's how, mon- that's how movements continue, is people stepping out in faith again and again and again and trusting God and returning to the tradition that helps inform our scripture, our scripture understanding. Wesley said this, that's often quoted on Facebook, but it's so good to be reminded of, that every movement can turn into a monument. And, and no one ever, I remember one time I went to Chattanooga, Tennessee, and I was on a youth mission trip, and we were in this inner city part of Chattanooga, and there's this huge church down there that we stayed in, and we slept in the basement. And it was this beautiful building on the outside, and I, I walked up to it with our, one of the leaders, and I was like, oh, cool, how many people go to church here? And the guy said, no one. It's empty. It's a thousand-seat sanctuary. And I never forgot that image. And I don't think that's... And I walked into that sanctuary, the paint was peeling off, and it was just, there was no one left. You know, and it's heartbreaking. But this isn't what God wants for any of us. He wants to, a church to be vibrant and full of his spirit and lives being transformed. And Wesley says here, well, this is, I'll read what he says. I am not afraid that the people called Methodists should ever cease to exist either in Europe or America, but I am afraid lest they should only exist as a dead sect, having the form of religion without the power. Did you know that on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit fell upon everyone there, the word there is dunamis, which means where we get our modern word dynamite. When the Holy Spirit is moving around the people, we get power for living. Don't you want power for living? <laughs> I do. You know, it, that, that it, we come alive in his presence. And he's saying here, you can have, the only thing that concerns me is that the Methodists could one day have all the apparatus of religion, but none of the power. No lives are being changed. There's no fruit being born. He said, this will undoubtedly be the case unless they hold fast both the doctrine 
spirit, and discipline with which they first set out to return back to where you started in order to get to where you want to go and hold fast to those things in love, he says. You know, Jeremiah, I want to go back to those words in verse, um, what verse was it? Yeah, in verse uh, 16, where the Lord says, find the good way, walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. You know, again, that sounds like Jesus when he says, let me take my yoke upon you. Let me guide your life. Let me direct your life. Let me receive me and, and, and let me lead you in that way. And my yoke is easy. My burden upon you will not be heavy, but you will find rest for your souls. I'm going to say a prayer for us. And if you close your eyes and bow your heads, I'm going to pray. And if that's you today, if you need rest, if you need to know the leadership of God in your life, this is my prayer for you this morning. If you've never committed your life to Christ before, if you've never said to him, I give you my heart and my life, let that be today. Be still and know that he is God and that he offers rest for weary, weary souls that Jesus died for you specifically and me specifically. And God's word to the prophet Jeremiah back then is the same for us today. Return to me. Go on the ancient paths. Don't reinvent the wheel. Don't try and do it yourself. It's not going to work. We have to go back to what we've already known what we inherited from those ahead of us or behind us. And God, you said that if we do that, if we return to you with all of our heart, we will find rest. And I pray for anyone here today, like I said, who's never chosen Christ, I pray the peace of God upon them, that they would receive you by faith. You might not feel it in any way at this moment. You might feel nothing. But in the coming weeks and months of your life, you'll you'll feel the attitudes, the appetites of your life will begin to change. You'll begin to feel a little bit more open to reading the Bible or caring for your neighbor than you did before. That's the Holy Spirit at work in your heart. Thank you, God, you offer rest to us. We return to you, O God, and pray that you lead us in discernment in the future. In Jesus' name.
our judge and our defender suffered and crucified forgive